Welcome back to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Rain, and I am joined once again by my co-host, Mika. We're back for part two of our conversation with Reverend Dr. Karen Kemp, who is a dear friend of the podcast. Today, Karen shares about Christian leadership and where she draws hope from. Please listen to part one if you want some context for this conversation. And once again, if you hear the sound of jangling in the background, that is Karen emphatically making a point as she speaks. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Having done your doctorate in Christian leadership and worked in that area, what are some things that you think are crucial for Christian leaders to know? What do you think it takes to be a good Christian leader and how do we do that? Well, there's whole libraries on leadership and Christian leadership and there's podcasts and, you know, YouTube sessions and it's all really good stuff. I know Wellington Diocese does a lot of work with things like courageous conversations, good to great. All of that stuff is really, really good stuff to sink your teeth into. But actually, I do think that good leadership is a lot simpler on one level than we give it credit for. And certainly this is the thing that's really stayed with me, not just from doing my doctoral studies, but, you know, I was working full-time all through that time and reflecting on my own leadership setting and my own leadership skills and what I was about. And... If I can summarise what I think it takes to be a good Christian leader by saying the best leaders and the only way to be a good Christian leader is actually to learn to listen deeply to God, to self, to others and to the context that we're in. That's it. That really is it. I think it's in Good to Great, the author of Good to Great, that says that Um, The difference between a good leader and a great leader is that a great leader spends around 40% of their time on self-management. This is a secular author. From our Christian perspective, it's that the time in solitude with scripture, in prayer, with God, listening deeply for God. You know, the two sentences that I love the most in our entire prayer book, <laughs> and, and which people who've seen me preside at the Eucharist will tell you are my favourite sentences because I often make them repeated twice. <laughs> and the first sentence is the one that we say at the beginning of the Eucharist of the Great Thanksgiving when we say, the Lord is here, and the congregation responds, his spirit is with us. I mean, think about that. The Lord, the creator of the whole universe, according to Colossians, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. Like everything that's ever been, that ever will be, he's here with us. Leadership 101, listen to him. In him are hid all the the riches, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why wouldn't I listen to him? Um, And actually the other sentence in our liturgy that I love, because it sits alongside that, you know, the Lord is here, his spirit is with us. And then in the other hand, as soon as we've read scripture, we say, hear what the spirit is saying to the church. That's our task. That's the task. You know, so no, we don't have to come up with clever, dicky, amazing leadership, heroic things to do. Our task is to listen and be responsive to what the Spirit is saying to the church. 
especially in the times that we're living in, these times of unprecedented change. You know, every every generation has had its challenges. That's true. And in some ways, the world is no worse today than it was millennia ago. We're still broken human beings in need of God's grace and work in our lives. But the thing that makes today different is the accumulation of change on every, every dimension of life that we look at is facing unprecedented change at an unprecedented rate. That's the burden of leadership today. I mean, who knew, for example, that COVID would come? You know, we've been warned about it for two decades now. But who knew it would look like this? And who knew the decision fatigue, the loss of hope, the loss of focus, the loss of momentum that leaders particularly would have to wrestle with in this season? Christian leaders, yes, but everybody actually in leadership across the board. So we just can't get past that. The core task of leadership is to listen, listen to what God is saying Listen to ourselves. If if we're not self-aware, we should not be in leadership because so much of leadership, so much of being able to be clear-eyed and not threatened by other people, so much of being able to really hear what God is saying, even when it's really uncomfortable for us, comes down to how much we're dealing with our own stuff. So listen to, to self and then learn the disciplines of listening to others. Like the listening, not just what somebody's saying, but what aren't they saying? You know, and what, in a group setting, what's being said in the spaces between what's being said? You know, what's the narrative underneath the spoken narrative? In education, we talk about the hidden curriculum. You know, the fact that we can, as an institution, we can put out the advertising and say, come, here's our amazing courses and these are our values as an institution and we care for our students. And then there's the hidden curriculum, which is how things really go on the ground. So as leaders, we have to be attending to that space, to that gap. That's where we lead. Uh, it's our job to make congruence between who we say we are, the things we say are important as people, as churches, as communities, in the way we actually are. You know, big billboards. Come, we're, we're a welcoming church family, but if you come to that church and nobody talks to you, actually, <laughs> really? <laughs> so that's that's where our leaders being able to listen deeply to other people and be in tune with the, the gap between who we say we are and who we actually are is really important. And then being able to listen to context. Every community has its own narrative tone. I love that term, a narrative tone. And we all know, you know, we see it at a level of family levels, it's particularly obvious, but also in church communities, universities, each university has its own narrative tone, you know. 
if if I were to think about Victoria Uni for me, Victoria's always been edgy in its narrative tone. It you know it likes to be cutting edge on stuff. If I had to name Auckland University narrative tone, I would say they're they're successful. They aim high. So, you know, down at the family level, what's your narrative tone? What's the narrative tone you grew up with? What's the narrative tone of the community that you're in? Is this the narrative tone you want to have? Do you need to shift the tone? That's the task of leadership. A good leader also knows the difference between leading and managing. Uh, you lead people and you manage systems and things and resources. Leading is not the same as, you know, keeping the roster running and telling people what to do. Leading is actually culture setting, attending to the narrative tone and holding the far horizon in view in the point that we are now. And we can only do that by regularly getting up out of the busyness of what we're doing, up on the balcony. This is a really helpful term, Heifetz. He's a um, leadership author, talks about getting up on the balcony as a leader regularly. So if you can imagine your your leadership context or your institution like a, a depending on how you wire the dance floor or or a game, you know, a soccer game or whatever in front of you. When you're down in the midst of it, dancing or playing the game, you don't see the stuff that you see when you're up on the balcony. So as a leader, you do have to get down and amongst it. Richard Allen, actually, the Bishop of Nelson, previous bishop, talked about um, walking among his people, you know, he did that big hikoi at the start of his time as a bishop to actually really literally walk his context that he was going into and understand who are these people, what is it that makes them tick, what are their dreams, what are they about, and connecting with that. And that's really important, but at some point we've got to get up on the balcony and actually survey the whole. So where's the, where's the busy patch on this dance floor? Where are the people on the edge who actually never seem to get onto the floor? They can't ever seem to find a partner to get onto the floor. What's stopping that? So what are the barriers for the people out there to get, get in and really engage with the dance? Where, where are the spots on the dance floor where, where there's so much energy and so much activity that people are actually dropping off completely? They're exhausted or they're passing out even, depending on how big the party is. All of that stuff is what we need to be attuned to when we're up on the balcony to get a sense of where, where is the hole at? How are we doing in living into who we say we actually are? And in achieving the things that we say we are wanting to achieve. So that's another leadership task. One of the big temptations in church leadership, I think, is to get so, especially as a, as a minister or a priest, is to get so caught up in the nitty-gritty, the relentless, I've got another sermon to preach, I've got another service to prepare, I've got a funeral that's come in unexpectedly, I've got a vestry meeting and the roof's leaking or the plumbing's burst, the finances are low, attendances are down. 
it's really easy to get consumed with all of that and forget why the church exists. So as leaders, it's our task to keep in front of ourselves and the people that we lead the for the sake of component of what we do. So we are church for the sake of seeing God's kingdom come in the world. Mm. That has massive implications for how we lead and what we do and don't do. So we have to keep the horizon in view. We have to keep the destination in view on that, you know, what does it mean to be a good Christian leader? There was an article actually just came through a secular secular leadership journal that I subscribed to just the last week. There was a piece in there about what does it take to be an exceptional leader? And they said it's just two words that separate exceptional leaders. So this was about interviewing somebody for a leadership role. So how do you interview a perspective person for leadership? How do you pick out the ones that are going to be exceptional and the ones that are just going to be, you know, rank and file? And they said there's just two words that separate those groups. And the two words are, um, they echo Dallas Willard, actually, Uh, An exceptional leader can be summed up in the words uh, attentive listening, period. Nothing else. Um, I mean, probably you've touched on this with Mm. a lot of the stuff you've talked about, but where do you think or where have you seen challenges arise for Christian leaders? What are some sorts of common challenges Mm. that arise and how do you tackle those? I think there's there's three three that come to mind immediately, particularly um, on this end of COVID. Actually, again, reading uh, reading what's out there coming out of the states, coming out of the UK, and leadership circles, Christian leadership circles, and listening to what's happening for Christian leaders here in New Zealand. Christian leaders actually around the globe have, they're also talking about the great resignation um, amongst leaders. So leaders who were struggling before COVID, many of them have moved on during COVID. And I haven't seen any statistics for New Zealand, but they're significant numbers that have moved on in different parts of the world. So there's people who have moved out of their roles and out of ministry, and then there's others for whom it's become a time of having to really evaluate who they are and what they're about. And I think that's come about because there's three, three things that have been really, really challenging, three big, big challenges for leaders. The first one is a loss of hope, which we've named, we've named already. Um, and that, I think, is, is related to a loss of place in God's story, like a loss of connection with the big story that we're part of. Because the story we're part of, well, we know how the story finishes, actually. We know how the story finishes, and it's amazing. It's truly amazing. But when we lose sight, of, when we get so embedded in the challenges of today that we lose sight of the end of the story then we lose hope, we lose a sense of momentum, of going in a, in a good direction, and I think that's a really big challenge. How do we overcome the loss of hope? I think we 
again, we we really attend to, no matter how busy we are, to spending deep, deep time in Scripture regularly, like daily time in Scripture and in prayer, and also staying really connected with other believers to, so that we can encourage one another. And an Old Testament scholar I knew in the UK talked about the Old Testament prophets who when all hope was lost in their communities, when the going got tough, they pushed out the horizon. In other words, they climbed up on the balcony and looked at the far, they pushed the horizon further out in God's purposes and reminded the people here about that horizon. So that's how they, how they bridged that loss of hope piece. I think worship is really critical in that loss of hope space because worship turns us back toward God and reminds us of things like in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and all of that. So uh, worship is important. The other thing I'd say about um, loss of hope, it's connected with the next one, actually. The second big challenge, I think, is loss of focus. And you can see how they're related, the loss of focus that comes from being so enmeshed in the pressures of the here and now that we actually lose sight of that for the sake of dimension of why we do this stuff. Like, why bother leading a church? Why bother hoping that all these people come and sit in this hall every Sunday morning for however long and hear a sermon and sing some songs and go home again? Like, why bother with that stuff? So I think that's a really big challenge, the loss of focus. What are we here for? And I think in terms of regaining our focus, one of the best things we can do is to get out there and remind ourselves why we're here. <laughs> um, in the years I was dean at St. John's, uh, for four of the years that I was there, I went out to worry. Now, I had a really full-time job. I was in full-time study. I was a very busy, busy, way too busy person. Once a month for three hours on a Sunday morning, I drove 45 minutes to the women's prison in Auckland to do Bible study with a bunch of Spanish-speaking women who had no other spiritual support because they didn't have the language. It was the best thing for me, you know, because it kept me and it was costly to do. I I was tired on the weekend. I was not up for driving all that way to go and be in a horrible prison room with these four women who, who were, they were pretty hard out criminals, you know. But actually, they kept me connected with... Like, why Why am I training all these people here at St. John's? Why am I putting all this energy into teaching classes, sitting with students, trying to figure out what their vocation is? Well, actually, that's why. Because of these people. Because there's a world out there that's hungry, that needs the gospel. So, for me, those visits to the prison kept me focused on the point of what I was doing at St. John's, and they gave me energy then to bring that into what I was doing with students. So get out of your bubble. If you've got a loss of focus going on, get out of your bubble and remind yourself 
of why we're here as church, and that's not to make church look better. It's actually much bigger than that. And then the third one that I think is a massive challenge is loss of joy. When things get really busy, and especially if there's conflict or if there's just loss of energy because of overwork or over-busyness, the first thing to go is joy. <laughs> you know, we lose the spring in our step. We, we start to feel tired. We get short-wicked with other people. But, you know, there's that little verse where Paul says, um, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, we used to sing that chorus years ago, and I never used to think about it until I got into a job that was as demanding as the one I've been in. And I realized how true that verse is, that our strength, our capacity to actually engage and stay engaged and keep connected and keep going in the midst of really challenging times depends on our joy. So joy matters and and we find our joy, I think, by spending time with Jesus. We find our joy by spending time in worship. We find our joy by sitting around the table and doing hospitality. We find our joy by playing. What does play look like for you? Where do you go to replenish? So joy is another really big challenge for leaders, I think. And isolation, I think, is a big, big challenge for leaders. And that's about building um, friendships. And that's hard to do, you know. But we live in a highly mobile society where people have very full diaries. So we could do a whole podcast on friendship and how important that is. I don't just mean, you know, just people to go and watch a movie with. I mean friends, critical friends that can say to you, actually, you're looking really tired. When did you last take a day off? Or who can pick up on, you know, you sure you're okay? Your perspective on this is just not quite as sharp as it could be. Are you doing okay? You know, have we got those sorts of relationships around us? Don't underestimate the power of those friendships over time, actually, to be real deep wells of joy, focus, hope, all of that to mitigate the isolation of the the more senior the leadership role, the more isolated you'll become. So you have to have those friendships. So in light of all these things we've already spoken about in the context of peace and reconciliation and in the context of Christian leadership, uh, I know you've already touched on it a little bit, but where do you draw your hope from and mm. what does that look like for you? I think two big places for me. The first one is just from the narrative arc of God's big story. You know, the knowing that what I can see isn't all there is, that the way things are isn't the way things will remain, that the way things have happened don't need to remain the way things have happened. The people of Israel, one of their practices, especially around their big festivals, was this commitment to remembering in order to gain hope to move forward again. You know, that when the patriarchs moved, when they moved from place to place, remember they used to build altars in the places where they'd met God in a particular way. And, of course, as nomads, they would come through those that way again and again through the generations. 
and those piles of rocks would still be there. Um, and they were places of remembering, of saying, yep, my great-great-grandfather met God. You know, Jacob actually saw the angels ascending and descending right there, and there's that rock. Um, I'm part of something a lot bigger here. So for me, that remembering is really important. Remembering not just the big stories of Scripture and, and of course, particularly around the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but also my own rememberings of, you know, my ancestors, my parents, our own life now, you know. In some ways, the older you get, the more remembering you can do. And you can say, yep, and I, could t I can tell you story after story of times when I was just, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot left and God just showed up at the, in the right moment with just what was needed in lots of different ways, including saving my life more than once through life. What I didn't tell you about my life story is that four years of my life were spent in a war zone and all of that that meant. So, you know, there were literally moments of knowing that God saved my life in that mm. moment in time. So remembering and putting myself back into God's story. And then the other place I draw hope is, um, you know, going back to that prison, one of those women in particular, I saw, I saw that woman from somebody who was hard, like she was hard. You could see her life in her body and her face. She was someone who had a lot of conflict with other people in the prison. And I watched the softening of Christ in her life. You know, by the time she actually was deported, I saw so a journey with her right up until she was deported back to where she came from. And she was a different person. And that's hope for me. Somebody whose very um, physical body looked different. Her face looked different. Her voice sounded different because of this gentling work of mm. Christ in her life. Interesting, in the early days, especially in Mongolia, when there were very few believers, people would often say that the first time they realized that there was something happening was they would they would see a Mongol walking down the street toward them and they would look different. It wasn't quite Moses coming down off the mountain or glowing like we imagine, but they looked so different that people would stop and say, whatever it is, I want that. That brings me hope. Because we can get so, you know, we're surrounded by books in this library. I teach Bible, I teach theology, I teach leadership. None of that, none of these books have got a patch on seeing what God can do in the life of someone. Yeah, that's hope. <laughs> we also always ask two questions at the end. One is what your most controversial opinion is. So, like, if you were in a, in a room with other academics from your field, what's something you reckon that you'd disagree with other people about? Well, I thought about that, <laughs> and actually my response to that question is, we are never in a room where there isn't disagreement. Mm. 
We, we will never be in a room where there isn't somebody who would deeply disagree with us. And if we are, then we're in serious trouble. We need to get out of our bubble and go find somewhere that's not quite so uniform. It's a really good question. I mean, I've had people disagree with me on just about everything, everything conceivable. So everything I believe is going to be disagreed with by someone. So, yeah, biggest leadership lesson is, it sounds, it is a cliché, but like most clichés, there's a lot of truth in it. We play to an audience of one because if we start to play to who we think is in the room or if we start to angst about people disagreeing with us, then we're done. I recently watched a video, actually, and we showed it to our home group. It comes out of a video series called the Visual Commentary Series, which is out of King's College in London, um, headed up by a guy called Ben Quash, who's the chair for Theology and the Arts. It's the inaugural chair of Theology and the Arts. And what he does is he interviews artists and art historians and talks about works of art, contemporary and ancient modern stuff. But he recently did an interview with a, a German photographer, film director called... Wim Winder, I think his name is. Um, 20 minutes, really well worth watching. Um, but in it, uh, this director talks about the fact that we live in a world that's highly opinionated. Mm. And, you know, how do we live? How do we live and lead in a world that's not only highly opinionated, but off the back of that opinionated state? will actually think nothing about defaming people on social media, taking people to court even, whatever it might be. We're a very opinionated generation. And he made the comment, he's a lot, directed a lot of docu documentary films, and he did one on the Pope not that long ago and got criticised for not being critical enough. You know, apparently he was too positive. And this director said, you know, he said, we're very opinionated. Everybody has to have a strong opinion about everything, even if they know nothing about it. And he said, yes, I could be critical, but he said the whole world is really critical now. And he used this lovely phrase, he says... I prefer to allow people to reveal themselves to me. And he said, my experience is that when I allow people to reveal themselves, their failings are obvious. I don't need mm. to point them out. And I love that. I love that, that posture, actually. I don't need to have an opinion mm. or be critical of them because... I prefer to just give them the space, again, ruthlessly eliminate, talk about ruthlessly eliminating hurry. Wait for them to reveal themselves. And if there's something glaring, it will show up anyway. He doesn't have to say, well, clearly the Pope, whatever. It'll come out in a story, mm. but it'll come out in the context of the whole person, and it'll be nuanced by 
not just the Pope said this or did this, but actually this is the whole person. And he used that phrase, he said, I prefer to look at people through the eyes of love and give them time to reveal themselves. Man, that would be a different world. What would it look like if we looked at, especially people we disagree with, with the eyes of love? And I think the flip side applies too, you know, him saying if there's stuff that's not so good, it will become evident. I think the flip side is also true. We don't have to tell people how great we are. We don't have to, you know, be telling people about that we have integrity or we don't or whatever it is because our life speaks and if people take the time to see who we are, then they'll see who we are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There's another really good quote from John Paul Lederach, actually. It's called Voice Walkers. Gosh, if we have time, I'd love to read it to you. That would be lovely. It sounds like I should really read John Paul Lederach. Oh, you do. I'll give you the bibliography for it. Yeah, that would be really good. I'll send you, I can send it to you. Oh, that would be awesome. So here's the quote. So this is John Paul Lederach talking about people in his life that he would call voice walkers. I think, man, this is so who we need to aim to be. He says, I have known a lot of voice walkers in my life. They really stand out immediately. You come to recognize them after a while, more than from first impressions. Lives don't speak in one-time conversations or Facebook posts. They speak over time. You may notice them first for the things they don't confuse. They don't confuse their job or activities with who they are as people. They don't confuse getting credit with success or recognition with self-worth. They don't confuse criticism for an enemy. They don't confuse truth with social or political power. They don't confuse their work with saving the world. They don't confuse guilt with motivation. Then you may notice something that is not easy to put a finger on. It is not so much what they do as who they are that makes a difference. They listen in a way that their own agenda does not seem to be in the way. They respond more from love than fear. They laugh at themselves. They cry with others' pain, but never take over their journey. They know when to say no and to have the courage to do it. They work hard, but are really too busy. Their life speaks. It's John Paul Lederach in his book, The Moral Imagination, The Art and Soul of Building Peace. Speaking of books. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the question is, what books are you reading at the moment? And then also what books or movies or podcasts have been formational for you throughout your life that you could recommend to us? Yeah. So I usually have three books on the go. (laughs) I always like to have a book, like a a heavy heavy book, usually associated with whatever I'm teaching at the time. Um, And then I, I like to have a more devotional book on the go. And then I always have just a, a novel on the go. I'm a great fan of historical writers like um, Ken Follett and Edward Rutherford and, you know, the big sagas of 
building a English cathedral or whatever it is. <laughs> just it's pure escapism. A book that I've just finished rereading recently, which I've really appreciated, is called The Shape of Living by David Ford. And that's very much about looking at life as a series of overwhelmings <laughs> and how we handle those and what the life of faith and life in Christ looks like in the midst of being overwhelmed. And that was, it's a really good book. Um, another book I read recently was a book by one of my favourite theologians, Miroslav Wolf, who's a Croatian theologian. And he wrote a book, it's a fairly new one actually, called For the Life of the World. And it's just, if you want some really good theology around how we live out of the truths of Scripture within the context that we find ourselves in, how do we bridge that gap? It's really good for that. And then the books that have been formational for me, yeah, I've got a bit of a list of those because I do read a lot. <laughs> And, and I've, re I've been reading for a long time. <laughs> so Dallas Willard is an author. I tend to read about authors a lot. So Dallas Willard I found really helpful. Um, Stephen Garber's book called Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good has got to be one of the best books I've ever read on vocation. Really good stuff. It sounds cliched again and cheesy but the bible <laughs> I mean if, you know, I've seen my life reading the bible and and I'm always blown away by the fact that it has something fresh to say to me every single day the new testament course that I teach I've taught it now for 15 years every year I teach the introduction to the new testament and I keep up with my research, I try and keep current with what theologians are thinking and biblical scholars and all the rest of it. But it never ceases to amaze me that every time I teach that class, somewhere in the course I'll be mid-flight, mid-sentence, and a completely new something will impact on me and will hit me as a something I hadn't seen before. And I think that happens because of who I'm reading it with. So my classes change every year. Who's in the mix changes every year. So that's the other thing as an aside. Read the Bible with different people all the time because they'll see stuff that you don't. So eat, drink and breathe the Bible. Wrestle with it, soak in it. Don't be tempted to oversimplify something if it seems too hard to do. Mm. By the same token, whenever you're overcomplicating something, ask yourself, am I really just trying to avoid doing something I know I should do? Allow the Bible to ask questions of you, who you are and how you live. Talking about who you are and how you live, Stanley Haras is another one of my, I go to, I read him a lot. I own his reader. Stanley Harris is a really unusual academic because most academics have written lots of books. Uh, Stanley Harris is quite a, he's a sort of reactionary, he's not the word, but he's, he's quite prophetic in the stuff that he writes and it's always in response to something. So uh, most of his writings are actually short articles or 
sermons or speeches or lectures or whatever. And so Stanley Harris as a reader, which you've probably got in the library somewhere, is really good for, especially on the peace building stuff. It's got some great stuff on community and in the peaceable kingdom, actually what it means to be the people of God. Sam Wells is a theologian, an English theologian who has been, he's a scholar priest in the best tradition. He's been a priest all his life. He's the vicar of St. Martin's in the fields in London, but he lectured in ethics at Duke University in, in the States for a number of years, and he has written a lot actually on ethics as improvisation. Um, that's a whole other podcast. But Sam Wells has really has shaped a lot of my thinking around the question of how then do we live faithfully in the light of Scripture in this place and this time? A lot around the place of the community and the church. Great little book of his called Living Life Out Loud is a really good, accessible, easy to read ethics in a, in a little book. Great stuff. Marissa Wolf again wrote an amazing little book. Again, the one he's famous for is called Exclusion and Embrace. Really good book, but really dense, hard to read. This one is a much more accessible read, and it's called Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. And that's a really good book about reconciliation and peace, forgiveness and reconciliation. Katongale and Rice. Katongale is a professor, an African professor at Duke University, a theologian. He teamed up with Rice to write a book called Reconciling All Things. Rice is a practitioner, he's a community activist, has a incarnational community type thing in one of the tough places in the States and they joined up together, teamed up and wrote this amazing book called Reconciling All Things and I think everybody should read it. Every Christian, every leader should read that book. Yeah, these are my core readings that I think everybody should read. <laughs> then there's a wonderful Catholic um, theologian called Robert Schreiter, who must be quite elderly now. He was a Catholic priest who worked with victims of torture in Central America around the time, I think, that John Paul Lederach would have been there, so same war zones. And he's written two incredible books about what it takes for a human being to be able to torture another. Mm. And they are profound reflections on humanity. Yeah, he's got a, some profound ideas on the nature of sin and the ways that we all, all of us, not only in a war zone, not only in a torture setting, but all of us, uh, he came up with seven different ways in which we demonise people that we don't like or that we disagree. And by demonise, he means the ways in which we make somebody other than we mm. are. So that's the way conflicts begin when we say that you are not like me, you are other than me. And if we do that consistently enough, then we begin to label people and demonise them to the extent that we can dehumanise them and as soon as somebody's dehumanised in our mind we can then be incredibly cruel as human beings to each other 
really confronting book, but really hope-filled. One of his books, he takes all the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection to all the people he appeared to, and he looks at them through the lens of them being moments of reconciliation between Jesus and that particular person. Really profound stuff in there around how we go through forgiveness and reconciliation. Parker Palmer, great little book on um, vocation called Let Your Life Speak, and then lots of good stuff on education um, as well. The Courage to Teach from Parker Palmer. Uh, The idea of the hidden curriculum that I talked about earlier, that's from Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker. Tom Wright has has shaped my thinking a lot, particularly his thinking around mission and the need to hold a commitment to Scripture, the proclamation of Scripture and acts of justice and then appreciation for beauty and and creative tension with each other. He argues that if we get, if we're all about scripture, we can become legalistic. If we're all about justice, um, we can become um, cynical and hard because if you're battling away, and you'll know some of this from battling away and, you know, with parliamentary things, over time it can wear you down and it can make you hard and cynical. And then if you only have beauty on its own, you become hedonistic and Mm. concerned with just beauty. And he argues that we need all three of those in in sort of really close connection with each other because they they keep us from the excesses of um, each one on their own. So we have such profound wisdom, actually, in that. And that's the end of my book list. I mean, there's loads more, but they're the key ones. That's a really good book list. And if, honestly, if you're interested in, you know, in the nitty-gritty how do you do the peace-building stuff, mm-hmm. Eastern Mennonite University, where I did that study, has a whole series of books called The Little Books. In fact, I'd be really surprised if you don't have some in here somewhere. Mm-hmm. So there's The Little Book, The Good Little Book, Good Little Book of Restorative Justice by Howard Zee, mm-hmm. The Good Little Book of Dialogue, Cool Tools for Hot Topics, <laughs> And honestly, if you want a little book with full of ideas of how to talk to each other in in your community, work your way for funds through that book. Like, there's some cool ways of doing conversations in there. Really cool. Then there's a whole little book on circle processes, which um, talks about the theory of it, but then it describes there's a million and one different ways of doing a circle. So, yeah, I use them all the time. Yeah, I use them in the classroom, I use them at home, I use them everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, good tool books. They are for your kid there. Yep. Yeah. You have given us nearly three hours of your time. That is so, so generous. Thank you so much. It has been such a joy. Yeah, thank you very much.